Hello, my name is Stephen Cram, and welcome to My Apologies. An apology doesn't just mean saying that you're sorry. It can also mean giving a reason for something that you believe. For example, if I ask you, why do you believe in Bigfoot? I'm asking for an apology. On this channel, we will examine various apologies for living a life of faith and virtue. And if I say something that offends you, my apologies. Today, we are going to hear from the first chapter of C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, and what he has to say about the argument for God from morality. This argument from morality can be summarized as, first, humans experience morality. Second, God is our best or only explanation for such morality. Third, therefore, God exists. And this is what is called a syllogism. It's an argument with two premises that lead to a single conclusion. In order for that conclusion to be disproven, you have to prove that one of the two premises, or both, has an error in it. In this case, you would have to prove either that humans don't experience morality, or that there is another sufficient explanation for the existence of morality, since those are the two premises that hold up the single conclusion. We'll be primarily focused on premise number one today, that is, humans experience morality. And we'll tackle the second premise in the next episode. For today, we'll observe how we can best see morality in action, why it's important, and finally, how it applies to our lives. Now, it would be simple to argue that humans all experience a single morality if everyone believed and acted the same way. But as we all know, this isn't the case. There are many different worldviews and opinions, as many as there are people in the world, and that makes this argument much more challenging to make. Since it seems like not every person is on the exact same page morally, how can we determine whether or not this law of human nature, as C.S. Lewis would call it, really exists? Well, Lewis thinks that we can actually begin by examining the friction that occurs between people in the midst of their disagreements. He says, Everyone has heard people quarreling. Sometimes it sounds funny. Sometimes it sounds merely unpleasant. But however it sounds... I believe we can learn something very important from listening to the kinds of things that they say. An example of such quarreling could be between roommates. You might ask your roommate to clean the dishes tonight because you cleaned them last night. If your roommate disagrees, he may say something like, actually, I cleaned them last night, so it's your turn. Or maybe he would say, but I took out the trash all week. The least you could do is take on an extra shift watching, washing dishes. People argue like this all the time, and I'm sure we're all accustomed to such conversations in our own lives. From this, Lewis observes, What interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. He is appealing to some sort of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. And the other man very seldom replies, To hell with your standard. Nearly always he tries to make out that what he has been doing does not really go against the standard or that if it does, there is a very special excuse. In our dishwashing example, the roommate did just these exact things. He tried to explain that it's not actually his fair turn, because he actually did it the night before. Or he tried to argue that there is a special excuse for why the rule shouldn't apply to him, namely, that he did another chore all week. As I was planning out this very podcast, I was sitting in a coffee shop typing away on my MacBook when a group of friends walked in. I knew it was going to be a problem as soon as they stepped foot in the building and the decibel level rose drastically. 
At first, I told myself, chill out. You're a Christian. You're planning out a Christian podcast, so show some charity. Then I tried to convince myself to see the beauty in a few friends enjoying life together in a society that had become so depressed and lonely. And that sounds really noble in my head, but I couldn't quite convince myself that it was true. So I started playing out the scenario in my head where I get up and politely ask them to be a little bit quieter because, of course, it's rude to be so loud. They're disturbing the other coffee shop patrons. I thought to myself, how might they respond to such an encounter? Perhaps they would be gracious, not realizing that they were being rude, and maybe they would agree to quiet down a bit. More likely, though, they would just get defensive and tell me to mind my own business. They might say, we weren't being rude, we were only having a bit of fun. And that's when it hit me. This is what Lewis was talking about. I can't imagine that they would say, we came here to be loud and rude. This is what we think is the right thing to do. Of course not. They wouldn't claim that rudeness is their virtue or the goal that they're trying to achieve. We all agree that being rude is wrong. Instead, they would try to explain that what they were doing was not actually rudeness. It was not actually going against the standard that we all agree upon. They would agree that rudeness is wrong, but argue that they weren't being rude at all. The fact that this is actually a true story that happened to me as I was writing this podcast tells you two things. One, that I need to stop going to coffee shops to get work done. And two, that this is how the law of human nature is really important in our day-to-day lives. We all experience it daily, and we just kind of take it for granted. If we didn't have this law working in our minds, as Lewis says, we might end up fighting like animals. He says, quarreling means trying to show that the other man is in the wrong. And there would be no sense in trying to do that unless you had some sort of agreement as to what right and wrong are. What comes to mind for me is, have you seen the movie Mean Girls? In it, the main character, Katie, finds herself attending an American high school after being homeschooled in Africa her whole life. The first time she goes into an American mall with her friends, she sees all her classmates mingling and hanging out around this decorative fountain that's in the middle of the atrium. It reminds her of a watering hole back home and all the animals that would go around it. And she starts to actually imagine her classmates as the animals. Some girls are picking bugs out of each other's hair. Some are chasing each other around. And two teenagers that are clearly in a fight end up tackling each other into the fountain. It's a hilarious image that makes you think, what if humans interacted like animals? How goofy would that be? It's just a joke. But if we look at it through the light of what Lewis is saying, if we didn't have this shared morality, or at least an idea of right or wrong we could appeal to, we would have no reason to quarrel the way humans do. If you're not trying to convince someone to appeal to some standard and shape up their behavior, there's nothing left to do but either fight, create violence to try to show that you're right by force, or just giving in and being subjugated. It would be a world in which truly might makes right. In my coffee shop scenario, perhaps it would have ended with me in a coffee-induced rage, leaping over the table and tackling the girl with a particularly high-pitched laugh. Thankfully, it didn't. Praise God for the law of human nature and noise-canceling headphones. At this point, you may be thinking, but there's not a universal experience of morality. It doesn't exist across all the cultures that have always existed. And to this argument, Lewis admits, there have been differences between their moralities, but these have never amounted to anything like a total difference. I only ask the reader to think of what a totally different morality would mean. Think of a country where people were admired for running away in battle, or where a man felt proud of double-crossing all the people who had been kindest to him. 
Now, I'm sure because you have a great imagination, you can picture in your head people being accepted for doing things such as these. But try to think of a country in which everyone actually looks up to a man who flees from danger or cheats on his wife or kills his best friend or steals something out of the mouth of the poor. Could something like this ever actually be seen as right and noble by a culture? Even if you look at the decadence of the Roman Empire or the human sacrifices of the Aztecs, they didn't have it nearly as wrong as what we're trying to imagine here. There simply has never been a society, tribe, or nation that has operated completely contrary to the law of human nature or acted like it didn't exist at all. To parse this out further, let's look at an example that Lewis gives to better explain what we're talking about. There are some cultures, such as the Christian-influenced West, in which it's not acceptable to have more than one wife at once. But then you have many tribes and cultures, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa, in which polygamy, that is, a man having more than one spouse, is widespread. How can we not say that these are significant differences in how these people are viewing the moral law? But I think this is exactly what Lewis means when he says that there have been differences, but never a total difference. These groups disagree on how many wives you can have, but neither of them believe that you can just take any woman that you please, as, as many as you please, or for that matter, that a woman could take whatever man she wants to be her husband or husbands. Another example that comes to mind, all my examples are from movies today. I was watching the movie 47 Ronin last weekend. I don't know if I should tell you that or not. I'm not really sure I would suggest it or if it's safe for kids. Maybe do a parental lookup before you watch it if that's your thing. But I was watching it nonetheless. And there's a scene in which a character is compelled to perform seppuku in order to retain his honor. This is, I guess, a, this is a mild spoiler, but it happens early on, so it doesn't really change anything. It's kind of the premise of the movie. Seppuku is, is an ancient Japanese ritual in which you take your own life and it's seen as being an honorable death. Now, this is a far cry from the Christian Dante-influenced culture in which taking one's own life is seen as extremely tragic. To me, it was shocking to watch this movie and try to wrap my head around this as a scene of honor rather than a scene of horror. This would be a difference of opinion in how an honorable death is achieved. Or maybe to say it better, a difference in what it means to be brave and exhibit self-sacrifice between the two cultures. These themes of bravery, self-sacrifice, etc., these themes would be universal from feudal Japan to medieval France to modern America. There is not a human culture in which the opposite, being a coward and being totally selfish, is praised. Does that make sense? The values are there. It's just a matter of the way the culture may achieve those values that changes. At most, various cultures, our own included, have experienced what Romans 1, 18 and 19 says, which is that they suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. God has placed the law of human nature, this morality, within us. We all operate and argue assuming that it's true. But when it's inconvenient, we either pretend that it doesn't exist to us or we break it. And that leads us to the final point, which is that the law of human nature is the one law of nature that we regularly break. We can't break the law of gravity or the law of chemistry or biology. These things maybe can be objected to, but never broken. If I'm climbing a tree, for example, trying to get back in touch with my childhood and I fall out of the tree because I'm clumsy, I will definitely object to gravity's pull but I can't deny it. In contrast, though, the law of human nature, which we all recognize and appeal to, is broken by us every day. 
To this, Lewis says, I am not preaching, and heaven knows I don't pretend to be better than anyone else. I am only trying to call attention to a fact. The fact is that this year, or this month, or more likely this very day, we have failed to practice ourselves the kind of behavior we expect from other people. And I am just the same. That is to say, I do not succeed in keeping the law of nature very well. And the moment anyone tells me I'm not keeping it, there starts up in my mind a string of excuses as long as your arm. And I love this next line. If we do not believe in decent behavior, why should we be so anxious to make excuses for not having behaved decently? The truth is, we believe in decency so much, we feel the rule of law pressing on us so, that we cannot bear to face the fact that we're breaking it. And consequently, we try to shift the responsibility. We believe in decency so much that we cannot bear to face the fact that we are breaking it. And that's why we make excuses and try to get around it. I don't know about you, but that always punches me right in the gut. I love it. So good. I've heard it said this way as well, that if you had a digital recorder hung around your neck that recorded every time you said that someone else ought to do this or that, like she really ought to be kinder to her husband or he really should stop lying, and you were judged based only off of those statements that you yourself made, how would you do? Do we live up to our own standards of morality that we recognize? Maybe you do, but I certainly do not. And I don't think I'm the only one. Praise God for mercy and grace. To wrap this episode up, I want to remind us of the three-part argument, or syllogism, that I gave at the beginning. The argument for God from morality. First, humans experience morality. Second, God is our best or only explanation for such morality. And third, therefore, God exists. In this episode, we've tackled only the first part, that is, humans' experience of morality, that human beings all over the earth have this compelling feeling that they ought to act a certain way, and that others ought to as well, but no one actually 100% behaves as they know they should. Next week, we'll look at the second part of the argument, from the next chapter of Mere Christianity, the assertion that God is our best or only explanation for such morality. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't subscribed yet, please consider doing so. Share this episode with a friend and leave us a five-star review. It really makes a difference. Until next time, my name is Stephen Cram, and this is My Apologies. Apologies.